The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for May 21st, 2022. This week, 10 people were killed in a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. The racially motivated hate crime, according to authorities, was allegedly carried out by an 18-year-old white male suspect who is now in police custody. The shooter reportedly used a gun etched with racial epithets and the names of previous infamous mass shooters. All 10 victims killed in the attack were black. Six women and four men ranging from ages 32 to 86. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from September 2020. In the episode, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Elizabeth Newman and Kathleen Ballou to discuss the history of violent white power movements in the modern United States. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 21st, 2020. Elizabeth Newman served as the Assistant Secretary for Threat Prevention and Security Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. She has recently been speaking out about President Trump and, among other things, his failure of leadership with respect to the threat of white supremacist violence. In the course of doing so, she made reference to a book by Kathleen Ballou, a historian at the University of Chicago, Bring the War Home, a history of white power violent movements in the modern United States. We thought it would be interesting to have them both on the show together to discuss the interactions of policy and the history that Ballou describes. Why have we underestimated this threat so long? How has it come to be one of the foremost threats that DHS faces? And what can we do about it given the First Amendment? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 21st. Elizabeth Newman and Kathleen Ballou on white power violence. Uh, so I want to start with this draft threat assessment that I think has not formally been released, but which Politico reported about recently, which brings together uh, the two of your work in an interesting way. The draft report suggests that the principal domestic terrorism threat in the United States is the threat of uh, white supremacists, and by implication, not Antifa. So Elizabeth, I want to start with you. Over what period of time and how, in your view, did DHS come to that view, which is obviously not the view that the administration would want DHS to be propagating? Well, first, Ben, thank you for having me. It's an, such a fun uh, opportunity to be on um, with Kathleen, who has helped me so much with understanding the nature of the threat. You know, the moment in time where you saw a, a, a demonstrable public shift in the way that we talked about and treated uh, the threat of, of violence coming from that far right extremist groups, the the 
white nationalists, the anti-government groups, is is probably the release of the strategic framework for countering terrorism and targeted violence in September of last year. And that document, it described the nature of the threat, both of uh, the more traditional radical Islamist threat, as well as said for the first time in any federal document that the threat posed by what the government calls racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism and anti-government extremism is on par with what we have seen out of international terrorism. And a few months later, that that document was produced by DHS. Um, It was uh, circulated among the interagency. It was concurred with, uh, but it was a DHS document. Uh, What you saw in January of this year is FBI Director Ray came out and said that this is the predominant threat at this point. It exceeds even what we are seeing from the capabilities of, say, ISIS or Al-Qaeda to do something domestically, that we have more violent extremist uh, attacks occurring from that right-wing extremist ideology. So I think you've seen the government shift. I think in retrospect, that government shift took too long, in large part because we haven't been able to understand the nature of the threat. And I'm sure we'll get into all of the reasons why. But I'm grateful that we finally had from the very, very top, uh, Russ Travers at the National Counterterrorism Center when he testified, also spoke to this uh, you had Director Ray, and you had the Department of Homeland Security, both under Secretary Nielsen, Secretary McLean, and Secretary Wolf. They've all said that this is a, a big threat. You flash forward to May of this year, though, and the president decided to make Antifa the villain, and uh, it seemed to work. It, it scared Americans, and he needs something because his poll numbers were not doing well because of COVID. And this fear and division and uh, his answer of law and order uh, seemed to, at least on its face, seemed to be working. And so you started to see uh, the attorney general and um, the secretary of Homeland Security try to start acting on that rhetoric. Um, and that that's very concerning. So back to your question about the Homeland Threat Assessment. I'm interested to see it actually come out and be final uh, and see what they say. There certainly has been a shift, and uh, we are seeing Antifa-like or or, um, anti-fascist, anarchist extremists conduct violent acts in ways that, you know, they haven't been doing, at least not uh, on as grand of a scale as it has been. But I still think, and I'm interested to hear what Kathleen thinks, but I still think that's relatively a small group and tends to be isolated in a couple of key geographical areas. And when you contrast that with the right-wing extremist threat, which is widespread across our country, you still are dealing with a much more um, severe problem with the white nationalist and anti-government movement. So Kathleen, you are a historian of the white nationalist extremist movement. And I guess one possible reason that this is now considered among or the most substantial domestic terrorism threat is that the threat of others has receded. And the other possibility, of course, is that the threat of this has grown. And so my question to you is, as you look at this movement over time, do you see it as a growing threat or do you see it as a threat that has kind of always been there? Uh, We just care about it more at certain times than others. Thank you so much for having me and for that question. And I, I want to begin by saying that nothing I say in this conversation is meant in any way at all to impugn the very difficult work that people like Elizabeth Newman have in monitoring and surveilling these groups in real time. You know, as a historian, I have this incredible luxury of hindsight where I get, you know, a huge archive and a bunch of people who have done what they were going to do. Um, All the chips have already fallen and I get to sort of just sit back and make sense of the big picture. Um, I really, you know, I just, I just want to express my, my understanding and and gratitude for the people that are doing this work in real time before I say anything. I think that we should think of this as a growing threat. I don't know if I would uh, accept your sort of two definitional categories of receding or growing. I think it's more that we as a nation have always had this undercurrent 
of vigilante and or revolutionary white supremacist extremism. It ebbs and flows, but I think the scholarship largely shows that it does not go away. Uh, instead, it takes different forms and has moments of peaking and receding. I think that all signs point to it rising right now. And I think that it is absolutely imperative that we do the difficult work as a society of figuring out what's happening um, and aligning our resources and our attention with stopping it. So the reason I had you both on together is that Elizabeth was on the Bulwark podcast recently describing her experience in government and realizing realization that the Trump administration was not confronting or not serious about this problem. And in the course of talking about that personal realization, referred to the enlightening experience of reading Kathleen's work. And so I thought this was a very interesting example of historical work affecting the views of policymakers in real time. And I thought it would be an interesting conversation. So my my first question, Elizabeth, is can you describe the context in which you ended up consulting Kathleen's work? What were the circumstances that led you to it? And how did it change your outlook as a policymaker? Absolutely. So I became the Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention in April of 2018. So at that point, Charlottesville had already happened, but we hadn't yet seen the full spectacular attacks, if you will, that we ended up seeing towards the end of 2018 and into 2019. And so as the attacks started to happen, you you saw the counterterrorism community grappling with this is metastasizing. This seems to be growing. We had been hearing from law enforcement colleagues that they, they had seen increases in hate crimes, that they were seeing increases in anti-Semitic rhetoric. So in addition to the, the big attacks that garner that the headlines, you're, you're also hearing from the community itself that, that is looking at things from a more holistic lens that that something is happening, something is changing. And so you start looking for resources. Lawfare was one of them where you're trying to understand the nature of the threat. And uh, and that's kind of how I came across uh, Kathleen's work. Um, I think I I probably first heard her in either a news interview or maybe a podcast and found her book and then started reading her book. And I just found it so helpful because it seemed on its face that it's not like uh, this white supremacy concept is new to our country. And it's though the tactics they may be using are new, we often talk about how um, it seems like they're borrowing from ISIS's playbook uh, in terms of radicalizing people online and encouraging them to bring your own weapon to the fight. You don't have to do a complex coordinated attack. You can just uh, do a vehicle ramming or you can uh, take a, a weapon that you have access to and and uh, cause violence and and wherever you think is is a, a prime opportunity target that this fits within their ideology of of trying to look for or bring about societal collapse so in finding her book and putting it it, it just having that historical context brought uh, I don't know. I just every every page I would turn, I would be like, "Oh, I see." There's <laughs> these things that I remember when I was a child, even, um, and and seeing it in that bigger, broader picture of how uh, you had a, a white nationalist movement that was capitalizing on various grievances that were occurring in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s. But the other thing that I think is really really telling the the way that our intelligence community works and the way our government works is that you have the intelligence community that looks, or they're supposed to be your deep thinkers, right? They look at both um, historical information as well as any new information that you, you obtain through intelligence means or law enforcement means. And then they're supposed to put together strategic assessments and, and brief us policymakers on what the problem is. And I was turning to the intelligence community, both DHS, INA, the FBI, uh, National Counterterrorism Center, and saying, what is going on here? And everybody's going, we we don't quite know yet, which I think is normal when you're 
dealing with a new threat, but it became really apparent that we needed people with different skill sets, different perspectives. The National Counterterrorism Center under Russ Travers held a conference um, to explore domestic terrorism as an issue. Everything from what are the definitions we're using to uh, what what are the laws constraints? How basically how how much can we do under existing law to go after this threat? And we, we were all grappling with it, but it was just so apparent to me that within the government, we lacked both the, the tools to be able to gain that intelligence for legal reasons that are justifiable, but they just didn't have the means to obtain the type of information that you would normally have on a, a movement or a, a group. So we didn't understand strategic intent. We didn't understand prevalence. We don't, I think it's fair to say, we still don't understand those things. And consequently, it makes it really hard for a policymaker to know, well, how serious is this threat? How, how much do we need to be changing in order to address this threat? Um, but clearly, as time has gone by, it became very apparent this this is a big threat and we need to be doing more. And unfortunately, and, and this is part of the reason I've been speaking out, I, I think the government has done about as much as it can within its legal framework. It'd be better if we could have the president speak out against this threat. I think that would help, especially since some of this uh, is preying on grievances that he tends to exacerbate. But beyond that, I think we need to have a conversation about the tools that uh, are currently available to our law enforcement, to our intelligence community, and and decide whether we need to change the law. But that requires that requires some discipline and leadership at the top, and we just don't have that in the executive branch right now. Yeah. So I want to return to the authorities question because it's uh, one that we've given some thought to on Lawfare and also just because it's one that our audience will be uh, interested in and sophisticated about. But I want to, I, I, since we have Kathleen here, I want to pose your question directly to her, which is, so Kathleen, you've just heard a, a former senior DHS official, a recent former senior DHS official, say, hey, we actually lack the expertise in the government right now to do serious assessments of key aspects of this movement, including its strategic objectives and its prevalence. So I want you, and I know I'm putting you on the spot, you are the author of a book entitled Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, which is a kind of, it's a history of uh, white power extremist groups. It kind of stops in the mid-90s. So with the, but with that as a caveat, what do you understand from, from your work that addresses the question of what are the strategic objectives of this movement and what can we say about its prevalence? Thank you so much for the question. And um, I'm so grateful that my book has found its way into this fora. I have much more to say about that maybe later, but I'm I'm just, you know, as a first time author, I'm very humbled that it's finding its way to people that can actually make a difference in this incredible problem. Okay. So when I say this movement, what I'm talking about is the white power movement, which includes uh, people like Klansmen, neo-Nazis, skinheads, later on tax resistors, militia, men and women, sometimes, but not always. And I'm talking about sort of the violent percentage of the people who are socially active as overt racists. So if we think about racism um, as a category that includes both people who own that as part of their personal ideology and people who sort of participate in some other more oblique way, within that category, there is a tinier percentage that is um, interested in violent action towards achieving white supremacy. Okay. Historically, the main thing that has been the central issue for the white power movement and for much of the militia movement, um, and I'm talking about from the founding of that movement in the late 1970s into the present moment, has been the perceived threat of reproduction of the white race, which is to say that there's a host of issues that we might associate with conservatism more broadly like opposing abortion, opposing immigration, opposing feminism. Um, but within the white power movement, those issues are understood as being problems 
not for kind of the usual reasons, but because they are perceived as a threat to the white birth rate. People in this movement see threats to the white birth rate not as sort of soft demographic transformation or, you know, the coming of um, a more diverse America, but as racial annihilation. So we're talking about a group of people who see themselves in the middle of a cataclysm, um, in the middle of a state of emergency. And many of them think that violent opposition is the only way to prevent that apocalyptic end. So when we think about strategic intent, I think the place to begin is that Many of these activists believe, and some of them believe this is a God-ordained mission, but they believe they have to take up arms in order to protect themselves and their race, meaning here the, the Aryan race, from annihilation. Many of them hope to do that by provoking civil unrest or a race war. Um, others hope to do that simply by amassing supplies and weapons and becoming survivalists. And then some are also interested particularly in disrupting federal government and federal operations. And this is where we get the targeted attacks on people like state troopers, federal judges, um, land agents, and other people like that who are seen as being operatives of the state. Just to clarify, when you say that this movement began in the 70s, I hear in my head the immediate objection, wait a minute. Uh, white supremacy has been around a lot longer than the 1970s. I assume what you mean there, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the 70s is the period in which, or the late 60s, early 70s, is the period in which this movement kind of loses the backing of a whole bunch of Southern state governments and ceases to exercise the meaningful power of state governments and therefore kind of goes underground. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that what distinguishes this movement from, or these movements from prior eras of white supremacy? So that's part of it. But the other major factor here is the aftermath of the Vietnam War. So what happens is that the Vietnam War creates this very widely held cultural narrative about betrayal by the government. Um, and, you know, that narrative runs not only on the fringe, but through all parts of American society. That's the one we usually see in war movies, for instance. Um, and that narrative allowed these groups that had previously been at odds with one another to get together in the same movement. So what we're seeing is not just, for instance, a resurgence of the KKK, but a resurgence of the KKK that unifies it with neo-Nazi groups and radical tax resistors and skinheads and militiamen. It is a movement that in every way but race, is an incredibly diverse social movement. It has people in every region of the country. Um, it involved men, women, and children. It involved felons and religious leaders and high school dropouts, people with advanced degrees. Um, and it also pulled in quite successfully veterans and active duty troops. So that whole array of people sort of came together in the late 70s around this betrayal narrative. And then in the 1980s, in 83 specifically, did something quite new, which was to declare war on the federal government itself and to use a number of strategies to bring that about that I think we've now become quite familiar with, one of which is leaderless resistance, which is you know known to us and familiar to us now as cell-style terrorism. Um, and the other is sort of the use of the early internet to do social network activism. And what can we say about prevalence? I mean, so Tucker Carlson goes on television and says, you know, racism is a tiny little thing. It doesn't really exist. It's a, a few people. We also have a vocabulary that sometimes fails to distinguish between violent revolutionary white supremacy and, you know, feelings of racism that are, you know, more internal to people's psyches, right, that aren't, that aren't causing people to blow things up or kill people. What do we know about how many people there are who are meaningfully part of this movement as you describe it? So I think that to really get an answer about that, we would probably need to do some kind of creative combination of research and thinking being done by historians who can kind of reflect on the broader movement and how it has worked in the past, um, watchdog groups who are keeping tabs on the movement through other channels, and then the surveillance agencies 
who have data about this. So my expertise on numbers really ends in 1996. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. One is that historians have a rule that everything has to really be 25 years ago or further. The other is that the data just really changes after 1996 because the movement became, I believe, more transnational. Um, I think it stopped, you know, the same groups were no longer in charge. So more movement activity was happening on the internet than it was before. Um, a lot of that activity was not archived very well or was not um, archived at all. And then on top of all of that, right, on top of the sort of distance problem, there's an additional layer of confusion because many of these groups are, first of all, dedicated to not keeping lists and not ever giving up their membership records. Um, many people will deny their membership in these groups if they're directly asked about it. And then the big one is this. So leaderless resistance, as I was saying, is that strategy adopted in 1983 forward, which is cell-style terrorism for the white power movement. And the idea is that one or a few activists could work to accomplish a, a violent objective for the movement without having any demonstrable ties with other people and without having any you know, prosecutable ties with movement leadership. Now, if your goal as a group leader is to carry out acts of leaderless resistance, you are no longer trying to recruit 2,000 people to march down Main Street, although they did do that from time to time. Instead, you're trying to recruit three people who are willing to assemble and detonate a bomb. So what we have after 83 is we don't have a neat relationship between increasing membership numbers and increasing acts of violence. And in fact, sociologists have begun to find that the opposite might be the case, that we see a plummet in membership numbers sometimes before these groups become violent. That's really interesting. So you have, it's sort of like the transition from SDS to the weathermen, right? Like the, you have this small nucleus that goes terrorist and is significantly more impactful uh, than a much larger organization from which it emerges. Exactly. And I think the other thing that we can understand about prevalence is that, um, you know, violent extremists are one part of white power activity. So I think it's helpful to think about this as a ring of concentric circles. Um, so if we look at that ring in the period of my study, when we have very good, clear numbers um, in the 1980s, for instance, if we want a count of the people who are in the movement, we're talking about, you know, this is a tiny movement. We're talking about only 25,000 people in that center circle, the bullseye at the center. Those are the people who live and breathe white power activism. They marry other activists in the movement. They homeschool their children and the ideology of the movement. They go to church in the movement. They do their summer vacation at Aryan Nations, right? Then outside of that, there's a bigger circle of, say, 175,000 people. And those people probably aren't involved in violent activism, but they regularly come out to rallies, um, subscribe to the newspapers, read the newspapers. They have social interactions within the movement. Then outside of that, there's another 450,000 people. And those people don't themselves subscribe to any of the publications but they do regularly read the publications. So as historians, we would count them as sort of, you know, less committed activists, but certainly they're still part of the movement. Now, what we have to keep our eye on is this bigger and more amorphous kind of group of people that I, I don't have a way of counting, which is the circle outside of that. It's bigger and less committed, but those are the people who would never pick up something called, you know, official organ of the Knights of the KKK, but they might agree with the story that's presented in it, especially if that story is presented by a friend or in some other social interaction. So this concentric circle mode of organizing does two really important things. First of all, it pulls people from the outside in when the movement thinks they can be radicalized. It also pushes ideas from the center out into our mainstream politics. So the violent activism at the center of the circle is like one of the problems we need to be paying attention to, but the flows of information are what's fueling the entire thing. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
Okay, so that's really interesting and, of course, will sound very familiar to anybody who has spent quality time with ISIS organizing or related matters. And it's a great segue back to the question of authorities that Elizabeth was referring to before. So if this is a foreign-based movement and it is primarily consisting of non-U.S. persons, we have an incredible range of tools to address it from uh, all kinds of surveillance authorities to the material support statute, which an organization of this type would be designated a foreign terrorist organization. And then you can, uh, you can treat as a criminal act any effort to or serious agreement to provide it any kind of assistance But because this is a domestic set of movements, or primarily a domestic set of movements, and we'll get to how domestic it really is momentarily, we can't do that. And so I guess as you think about it from a law enforcement model, what are the tools that you're lacking by way of dealing with this problem? Yeah, I mean, this this is what we've been beating our head against the wall for the last now almost three years. Some of this is the uh, the law constraints, as you as you put it. What counterterrorism tools and apparatus that that we have, what we can use overseas, you can't use domestically. Uh, so, okay, that's fine. Maybe we just rely on the analysis capabilities of uh, DHS, FBI, and NCTC because under the law they can they can do um, analytic work, and then primarily your intelligence apparatus domestically is going to be the FBI. The problem there is that uh, the FBI, in my vantage point, um, didn't work at the FBI, but I don't know that they're resourced well enough to be able to investigate and understand prevalence, understand prominence across our country and in the way that FBI is structured and U.S. attorneys are structured, that there is uh, there are priorities that go out from DOJ and from FBI, but um, there's a lot of autonomy given to the local FBI SAC and the U.S. attorney in terms of what is appropriate for their geographic area of responsibility and, and how they want to prioritize things. And there are a lot of threats in our country, so it completely makes sense that that's decentralized. But if you're if you're trying to paint a picture of how prevalent something is, I'm not sure that that decentralized uh, structure is going to paint an accurate picture. And now I'm not suggesting that we change the decentralization. I'm just pointing out that we, if we only rely on that, we're not going to ever have maybe the same type of picture that we can about ISIS or Al Qaeda overseas. So we're inherently uh, stuck with that decentralized approach, and then the resourcing along with it, the FBI, again, from my vantage point, they do a lot of amazing things. They thwart uh, a lot of important things that the, the public almost never sees. But the reality is that the number of people that um, are on the bubble, if you will, that are becoming radicalized to violence, and I don't mean in a radicalization to an ideology, but as much as this moment at which they decide to, they're going to carry out this act of violence is increasingly becoming quicker. Uh, in the advent of the internet, and we saw this uh, first with homegrown extremists uh, and being inspired by ISIS, you would see people go from, uh, the FBI often talks about it in terms of flash to bang, exposure to radicalized content to the decision point at which they pick up a weapon and decide they're going to carry out an attack or start planning that attack is very, very short compared to, uh, say, 20 years ago when you were looking at how long it took somebody to radicalize to that point at which they're mobilizing to violence. It seems to me there's another factor there that is really perverse, but I think really powerful which is that in addition to the time that the flash to bang has gotten shorter, the threshold of what it takes to really shock people has gotten higher. So, you know, the USS Cole bombing did not cause the United States to, you know, fundamentally reorient things to address Al-Qaeda. And that was an attack on a U.S. warship that killed 20 people or something. It took 9-11, right? And now 
if you have an attack, we have these completely spectacular lone gunman attacks that don't change a lot of people's thinking about things. And so, you know, our pain threshold has grown enough that if you're engaged in the kind of leaderless resistance that Kathleen is describing, and you kill three or four people, or eight people at a synagogue, or nine people at a church in South Carolina, you know, we'll we'll go through a whole lot of ritual of saying how awful it is, but it doesn't actually change policy very much. And you see that most dramatically in the gun space, where we seem to have an incredible tolerance of, of high body counts. But I think it's also the case in, you know, we kind of shrug at terrorist attacks where the body count isn't above a certain level, you know, and, and that paradoxically manages to protect white supremacists who, with the solitary exception of, it's a big exception, of course, of Oklahoma City, tend to rack up a large aggregate body count, but the individual attacks are relatively small scale. Now, I I think that's, it's interesting to hear you frame that because I've been contemplating that myself, just, you know, is it a good thing that are we more resilient because we endure these attacks and we get back to life more quickly or are we more callous and therefore not actually fully appreciating that any loss of life is, is horrific. And, and to your point, I think it, it's so easy to move past onto the next bombastic thing that you see on your, your news screen that day and not pause and, and say, well, something's happening in my country. Why is there so much hate? And why, why you know, I, I do think Charlottesville broke through that, right? I think there was a collective, you know, horror for most Americans to see, you know, people not even hiding their face, walking through with tiki torches in the middle, middle of a university setting saying Jews will not replace us. I, I think for most Americans, we thought that had gone away that that was no longer something that you could say in polite society, let alone um, would be tolerated. And to see it right there in your face, to see that kind of hatred and antagonism towards somebody because of the color of their skin or their ethnic background uh, was kind of horrifying. And yet at the same time, back to your point, the political rhetoric of the right has become more xenophobic, has become more racist. And I don't, I think sometimes people are parroting it and don't realize that their rhetoric is in fact those things, but it's coming from their leadership and it's uh, coming from a place of gaining political power through fear, through fear of change. And, and back to Kathleen's book, one of the things that I did not realize as a conservative is that a lot of the things that I had been raised with, a lot of these ideals that are are part of conservatism, and I need to be careful how I say this because it's not that conservatism is racist, but they there are some underbelly aspects to certain conservative thought that actually do go back to what was inherently kind of a racist perspective. And, and it's, been, it's been part of my own journey in reading her book and reading other books about uh, racial injustice and kind of trying to separate out uh, what, what is okay political conservatism from a political philosophical perspective. And then what are those things that on their face were actually put in place to keep us segregated as a society? It's, it's kind of a really challenging moment in time that we are as a country, but even more so if if we have this growth of violent extremists on the right and they are leveraging the political rhetoric that is on the right and building off of those grievances to potentially recruit people into that violent center circle that, that Kathleen was describing, like it's all the more important for principled, non-racist Republicans and conservatives to understand that this is happening, that they are taking advantage of that fear. They're taking advantage of that grievance to to recruit vulnerable people into their movement and potentially stoke more violence. 
I, I, to be clear, do not think that the vast majority of people that identify as conservatives or Republicans are in fact racist or have any sort of violent tendencies, but I think they are ignorant to how they are being taken advantage of. And the, the best way we can start to address that far extreme violent tendency is to really clearly state that that is not tolerated. It is unacceptable to be racist. It's unacceptable uh, to sow fear because somebody is different than you. And I, I really wish we could have that from the top of our government um, or at least Republican leadership come out and clearly say that, because I think that would have more of a squashing effect on some of this increase in, in the, the violence um, than anything else we could do in the counterterrorism community. Okay, and just to limit the point to a law enforcement environment, how different is it if you have a president who is not stoking it intentionally, unintentionally, willfully, recklessly, um, but who is not dipping toes in that water? They're you know not dog whistling, and an attorney general and an FBI director who clearly designate this as a threat priority so that, yeah, there's a lot of special agent in charge autonomy in the different FBI field offices, but they have all, just as they once got the message, you know, we need to find every Al-Qaeda cell in the United States. They know that this is, that the time that they spend looking at these issues is not going to be time for which they will pay a professional price. I mean, I would, I would hope that happens soon. I, and, and a, if there's a change of the administration, I think that would be very critical. I also called on Congress uh, before I left my position um, to set up a commission, a counterterrorism commission, to relook at our laws and authorities and, and figure out what the right answer is as it pertains to a domestic terrorism statute, I don't pretend to know all the, the right answers. It needs to be done extremely carefully because of the potential civil liberty abuses. And, and we certainly have already seen a government that has been abusing um, its authority, and uh, particularly in the last six months. So I, I, I say it with trepidation, but I also say it as it's the right thing to have uh, smart people such as folks that work at Lawfare and people like Kathleen come to the table and examine this come up with options, and then let the Congress do its job and debate it and, and determine what's the where we need to go as a country. Do we do a domestic terrorism organization statute? Do we change the criminal penalty for domestic terrorism? Do we increase the uh, surveillance capabilities the FBI has on somebody that is designated a DTO? Those are all things that deserve to be explored and determined before we have a catastrophic attack. Put another way, I don't have firsthand knowledge that anybody's planning another Oklahoma City bombing, but I think we would be foolish to think that there aren't those individuals who would aspire to do that. So before we have a 9-11 commission for a domestic terrorist, could we do that work now? Could we have that conversation now and give law enforcement the tools they need to combat this threat, as well as ensure that our civil liberties are protected? So Kathleen, I'm one of, if I were a white nationalist violent extremist and I heard Elizabeth say that, I might smirk to myself and say, huh, come at us. We're so dispersed and leaderless that, you know, you can bust a cell of three, but you'll never, you'll never actually get to us. There's no, we don't have any Anwar al-Alaukis or Osama bin Laden's. And so, you know, hit us with your best shot. We're sufficiently embedded in the population and sufficiently pervasive that uh, we actually don't have a great deal to fear from law enforcement energy. And if I were a white supremacist, violent extremist, and I were to smirk that way at Elizabeth, would I be right? Or would I be kidding myself, which is all a long-winded way of saying how responsive to and vulnerable to law enforcement pressure, in your view, are these groups? What a question, Ben. Okay, so uh, first of all, I mean, like, I, I understand your concern, and I'll, I think it's even a little deeper than that, which is that a serious 
effort to confront this movement will involve probably the radicalization of some additional people who see the government or surveillance agencies cracking down on white Americans and don't like that and say that they're coming for our guns. And And just to make that point vivid, Timothy McVeigh was radicalized by Waco and Ruby Ridge, right? Yes, in part. Yes. Although McVeigh also had white supremacist ideas before that. But yes, certainly Waco and Ruby Ridge inflamed the militia movement quite a lot. But I think what I would say to the whole of the question is that I am really heartened that there are people like Elizabeth reading the research and learning this history and using all of the resources that are out there. Um, And I think that convening this conversation would be an enormous step in the right direction. But I also think that it is insufficient because as you say, this is not a problem that exists only in the space of policing and surveillance. This is what historians call a transscalar problem, meaning, and, and by problem, I'm talking about the way that the white power movement has kind of evaded our attention as a movement. So part of that has to do with surveillance and authority and priorities and who is monitoring whom, different political sort of limits around what law enforcement officers can do at a given time. But part of it is is also operating at different scales. So for instance, you can have all of the changes to the law you want if you get these people to trial and then a jury is unable to convict because of the way that prosecutorial conduct and jury instructions work um, allows a biased trial, then we're nowhere, right? If you get them convicted, but then journalists don't sufficiently understand what this is and go on and report on a whole bunch of quote unquote lone wolf gunman stories such that we don't have public backing for this kind of a debate in Congress, then we're nowhere. So this is something that has to happen at the level of surveillance agencies, certainly. But we also have to look at journalism, at uh, prosecutorial instruction, at jury pool rules, at um, kind of the whole of the system. We would need to look at Um, You know, there's concerning reports coming out about continued involvement of active duty troops in these movements. And I think that reasonable people can agree that it is against the oath of induction to participate in a war on the state while you're serving the armed forces. And I think all of that has to happen kind of at the same time. Not for nothing, a lot of this is a question for us as a society about confronting our own history of white supremacy. So much as Elizabeth is describing her own sort of reckoning with the place of racism in the ideas she grew up with, I mean, liberals and progressives have that work to do too. We all have that work to do as a nation. And I guess I would just underline that, you know, it's, it's, I think that people who listen to lawfare know about the Oklahoma City bombing, but most Americans really don't. People might know that it happened, but very few people think of it as part of a social movement. And Maybe a few think of it as domestic terrorism, but mostly I think we have a story about a lone wolf or a few bad apples. And we have, you know, this is the largest deliberate mass casualty on American soil between between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And most people don't know what it was. I think that is a staggering sort of failure as a society to come to terms with this. There was no Oklahoma City Bombing Commission in any meaningful way. And we, we have to do that work. That's such an interesting point. You know, the Oklahoma City bombing was a a formative moment for me as a journalist and a writer. I was a young reporter when it happened and and covering the Justice Department. And I and it's, you know, seared in my brain in that like thing that happened during your early career kind of way. And uh, it's very hard for me to imagine that it isn't seared into other people's brains in the same way. But of course, you're right. I want to, before we close, I want to ask about the internationalization of the movement. And the reason I want to focus on it is, first of all, that it goes to this authorities question, which is the more international the movement is, the more plausible a strategy of intense surveillance of the movement overseas by way of both finding out things that may be happening in the United States, which is, of course, a little bit dicey, but it can be done, but also that the more international the movement is, the more vectors of possible 
attack there are. And, you know, the, the two of the movement's biggest attacks in recently, one of them in, was in Norway and one of them was in New Zealand. And so, you know, you're talking about a movement that's lethality is, as at least in the spectacular terrorist department, is, is has been overseas to a large degree. I'm interested, Kathleen, in your sense of, you know, how this very American white power movement kind of migrated. It's become infatuated with people like Radovan Karadzic. It's become a, like a sort of weird global global thing that kind of grows out of the American violent far right. How seriously do you take its internationalization? I think it has always been a transnational movement, but the more the internet is sort of the main mode of communicating and radicalizing, I think it's even more open to that kind of an organization. So if you go way back, I mean, um, you know, Christian identity comes in, came into the United States via Canada. Activists were coming in to, to the United States, to the far right from Canada and Germany and elsewhere. People in these movements were also involved in mercenary soldier operations in South Africa and Central America. So there's a sort of global imaginary that's already there before this really gets going. But after the white power movement proper really identified itself and defined itself in the United States in the 80s, we see this very frenzied export of, uh, you know, American white power movement materials, people, culture to other places. So I'm, I'm thinking of things like the Turner Diaries, which is the main sort of cultural lodestar of the movement. It's a novel, but also important to the movement in other ways, turns up in bookstores kind of all over the world. There's stories about people finding the Turner Diaries in South Africa or Australia or elsewhere. And um, groups like World Church of the Creator founded chapters in other countries. Aryan Nation sent its materials to other countries. Um, a bunch of people had things like cassette by mail order programs that were targeted to people in other countries. And activists even in the United States thought about what they were doing that way. There was one guy who started a legal foundation called Cause, which is Canada, Australia, South Africa, United States, Europe. And the idea there is that all white countries that were quote unquote salvageable would be united in this movement. And, you know, when we say white nationalism, one important thing to keep in mind is that from 1983 forward, the nation in white nationalism is not the United States. The nation is the Aryan nation. People were really interested in thinking about a white homeland or even a white world. And, and they weren't shy about using violence to achieve those goals. And those goals haven't gone anywhere. People still are using that same ideology to motivate action today. So I think it is a profoundly transnational movement. And we can see things like, you know, the 14 words is a thing that comes out of the white power movement in the United States and shows up written on gun stocks in Christchurch and referenced in things like the Breivik Manifesto. Th those things are, they are now part of a worldwide white power sort of lexicon. Elizabeth, wrap us up as you think about the globalization of the movement. Does that offer law enforcement and intelligence opportunities that the domestic side of the movement may inhibit? Yes. Let me go back to one of the ways we knew we had a growing problem on our hands is our counterterrorism colleagues in uh, across the globe were identifying for us that they were seeing our folks, uh, United States citizens, traveling to their countries to conduct trainings or participate in trainings. And um, they have very pointedly told us that you all are an exporter of this hate and you need to get on top of it. They understand that we have uh, restrictions and much like they do in their countries about what kind of surveillance you can do on your own citizens and uh, that it's much harder to thwart those types of movements uh, as compared to international terrorism. But it is, it is probably one of the more jarring things that I 
discovered during my tenure uh, is how how much of a problem the United States has become for the rest of the counterterrorism community. That said, to your point, it does allow us to uh, to use some of those international uh, counterterrorism tools uh, to be able to understand better where information is flowing, where people are flowing, and um, what some of their plans may be. Probably the best example of this is in March or April of this year, the State Department designated a group, a, a, a foreign terrorist organization, a, a, what we would consider a domestic terrorist organization. It was really a, a, a white power type of movement. This is the Atomwaffen? Yes, yes. Um, they were able to reach that high bar, but you know they looked at a number of other groups and could not reach that high of a legal standard, as you all are and your audience is probably familiar with. It, it is a pretty uh, significant standard you have to meet. So uh, the, I, thus I go back to I, it, it really would be great if we could uh, have appropriate, reasonable dialogue over um, adjustments to to our authorities so that the counterterrorism and law enforcement community uh, can better address the threat. But I also want to footstomp what what Kathleen talked about, about the importance of a societal understanding of the threat. Even within the intelligence community and the law enforcement community, there is a, a, a tendency to just minimize what we're seeing and call it lone wolf attacks. You'll see that throughout a lot of the leaked uh, intelligence products that go out. And I think that's a misunderstanding. Um, and so the more we can talk about it uh, as a society and, and people like Kathleen have the opportunity to educate about our history and and what that movement sought to do and and tie it to what we're seeing now, I think the better off we will be. We're going to leave it there. Kathleen, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is, as always, performed by Sophia Yan. You should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Tweet about it, share it on Facebook, upvote it on Reddit, and pin it on Pinterest. You can get your Lawfare merch at thelawfarestore.com. And as always, thanks for listening.